Hey everybody, welcome to Thumbnail, a visual arts podcast. I'm Joe Rochert, illustrator, animator, and adjunct professor. And I'm Louis Rosinal, visual artist. And today we're going to be talking about two things. We're going to talk about some art fairs and things like that. The main topic of the podcast is how do you know when your piece that you're working on is finished? Because there might be a tendency to overwork pieces. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But what I wanted to start with is it seems obviously with what's going on with the coronavirus and the economy, a lot of states are starting to reopen. But there's some things that are not reopening and they're not going to reopen anytime soon. For instance, like here in Maine, Funtown and parks like that, they said they're closing for the summer and they won't be open till next year. Oh, wow. I haven't heard about that part. Yeah. And like York's Wild Kingdom and things like that. And then they've canceled all the fairs, Freiburg Fair, Acton Fair, and then all the art fairs and art in the park and that type of stuff. That's a big blow. Huge. For the artist community. Yeah. That's what I wanted to talk about because I'm thankful I don't make a lot of money at those fairs. That's not my main source of income, but I know artists. That's like half of their income for the year yeah. is doing a few of those fairs. And if they're canceled... Have you done any of those fairs before? I mean, I have done a couple at Mecca and stuff, but it's never been like a huge source of income for me, like I said. So it's not the biggest deal. And even like the Mecca Collect Show, did you enter any pieces for that this year? I did enter. I don't know if I got in or anything. Yeah, they haven't sent anything out yet, but... That, it's normally a show that every year they do, and it's a sale to raise money for local artists and like scholarships and things. And they are going to do it this year, but they're going to be doing it online so people can see online and buy art. We'll see how it goes. I can't imagine it's going to be as successful as years past where people could go in person and see the art. We'll see. But a lot of art fairs aren't going to do anything. They're not replacing their fair with a digital version. It's hard because a lot of artists... Obviously, artists aren't the only ones suffering in this economy, but when you work for yourself, getting unemployment is hard. Yeah. And so what do you do when you're in a spot like that? Yeah. You do make money at fairs, but it's not like you're... How big of a source of your income is it for you? Well, it was like 10% of my income. That's a big hit then. But now it's become 100% of my income. Not fairs specifically, but direct sales. Let's just put it that way. Wow. I do end up selling a ton more directly because I don't think I have a very strong social media presence. So I'm not getting tons of traffic to my online shop. Mm. That's been a struggle to try to boost that a little bit now. But I do really well usually at fairs and stuff. So with just, and this is just basing it off of the month of December and doing three days worth of holiday sales. Yeah. That would sometimes equate to 10% of my income. Well, let's hope by then they have some type of solution where you're able to do them because that's not until the winter. So who knows what things will be like. And I was thinking more of the summer ones right now, which are being canceled. Do you do any of the summer ones around here? Because there are some. I haven't yet, but I recently ramped up and invested in the tents and the whole setup and product that I'm ready to produce for that and have ready. I was totally jazzed to be like signing up for all these fairs. And now yeah. that was kind of a bummer because I was getting excited for that last year. I guess you'll have to hold on to it and hope when things, because it's not going to be like this forever. I mean, there's no way. Right. But there's just so much unknown right now. Yeah. I was just curious what your thoughts on it were, because I know, like I said, I'm grateful that that's not a huge part of my income. But if I ran an art fair, I don't know if it would be worth my time to try to set up some other alternate way of doing it 
for this year, whereas next year you're hopefully going to be able to get back to normal and how much work is involved in setting something up where it's all online. If you're going to put the work in for online anything, you might as well be putting the work in for your own online shop and just keep plugging away to get more online traffic yourself. And if you are running the fair, maybe the only thing you can do is take the hit as the fair organizer and try to promote the people who would be coming as vendors to your fair. Yeah. Because I know there's been some really screwed up things happening recently. Luckily, I didn't get into the New England Maine wholesale fair Mm -hmm. that was happening, but I have a bunch of friends that did, and I recently found out that they didn't get their table fee back. Oh, wow. And they pay thousands of dollars for those. Why aren't they giving them back? That's crazy. There's some random small print item in a contract and there's like act of God clause kind of bullshit. That's nuts. That's just not fair. And they pulled that card to save their own ass. They just got all these thousands of dollars from all these artists and they're just going to keep it? Yeah. And the only thing they offered in return was a 25% discount for the next four years. So you'd have to commit to four years to make it back. To make it back. I think that's a dick move for a business. That's not right. I could see them saying next year you don't have to pay. Instead of giving the money back, just saying we'll put that towards your next year. So you only have to do one year. That I could see. That makes sense. Because what if it's your first year and you're trying to judge to see if this is even the right fare for you? Oh, that's true. And then you go next year and it doesn't work out. And so now you're out double. And like I said, it's not only artists that are affected by this, obviously. This is so many industries that are just going to be hurt and are going to have to readjust and do things so differently. But the art world depends on galleries. Well, it has in the past anyway, and depended on openings and shows Mm -hmm. and getting people together to view art. And so let's put it this way. If this pandemic had hit 25 years ago, where there was no internet, really, it would have been a lot harder for artists to survive through this. Totally. So it is kind of good timing because at least there's a way to still get out there and and reach people. But man, there's still so many people that rely heavily on galleries and on fairs and on things like that, that it's just a mess. Think about just sheer numbers. If I were to imagine a fairly successful gallery in a highly trafficked area, you'd probably be counting mainly on foot traffic. Right. And so I would imagine a lot of that foot traffic would be potentially interested in looking at the gallery stuff. Mm -hmm. But how many of them are really prospective buyers, especially if they're just walking around? You never know is a thing. But let's say what would a good day be? In Portland, several hundred people coming in to look at it would be a good be a good day. A bad day. A couple dozen, maybe. Right. And so think of those as far as views you get on even just an Instagram post with a moderate following. Right. Yeah, maybe only 7,500 people will like your image with a couple thousand, maybe not even, person following. Yeah. But you're making, what, 1,000 to 2,000 impressions based on that. Just people looking at it and not liking it. So it's essentially just people stumbling off the street, walking by into your online gallery, walking out. So it's like you're trying to balance the value there. That's probably one of the biggest reasons that you really should be trying to grow your social media following as much as possible. Because if it's stagnant, 
then you're showing the same hundred people every day. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And if they're not buying, then you're showing a hundred people that are non-buyers. Whereas with a gallery that's in Portland, when they have new tourists coming in every day, it's at least new people you're getting to show your work to. So you can at least use hashtags and things like that to get yourself on other people's pages that haven't seen your work. Yeah. That's the key is just getting in front of new people all the time because, right. I mean, you obviously are going to have repeat buyers, but the point is if you want to try to grow and you want to try to sell, you have to keep getting yourself in front of new people. Right. But you're right. Instagram can be just as good as those galleries, if not way better in a lot of ways. But that's what's different too with fairs. When you have a fair, that's a destination. People are coming to that for that reason with money in their pocket, expecting to potentially buy something. Yeah. Most of the time, they're at least willing to buy something. That's a huge blow, I think, because online tends to be an impulse buy type of a thing. I think people are more likely to buy art original art too if they see it in person yeah because when you see a photograph online you can't get a good idea of the size of it even if the size is listed when you see it in person maybe you can actually visualize it on your wall more Hmm. i do sell originals online but i sell a lot more prints and things because people are willing to part with a smaller amount of money and know that it'll probably look good but once it starts getting into high amounts most of those art collectors like to see the work in person if they can before they buy it. Right, that's true. I think we're all hoping that as things open up, we don't see a huge spike so that more things can start opening up. Yeah. Because it's going to be weird watching Celtics games with no audience. And they were talking about adding in fake cheers. I think that's dumb. Someone had a good idea with those type of things where there's not going to be audience noises. Mm -hmm. It might be cool to have some more microphones on the benches so you can hear the players talking and cheering. Yeah, that could be cool. You get a better idea of what they're talking about. I don't know. It just might be something different because I don't want to hear fake clapping and fake cheering. Would you mind seeing a crowd that's 25% at capacity? It's weird because at 25% at capacity, that's technically 100% because that's all they could sell. Right. Those people have to make a lot of noise for it to seem like really exciting, you know? (laughs) Right. They'd almost have too much attention brought to them because the crowd would be so sparse when you're watching the game. When I was younger, I went to a Red Sox game and it was probably 70% capacity. It was quite a few open seats. And even that seemed a little bit depressing and not as lively. The Celtics games I went to that were playoff games were packed and there was so much energy in that room. Yeah. If you get that down to 25% of that, it's just like... In some ways, it's cool to be one of the people in there because there's so many less people, so it's a little bit more exclusive, I guess, in some ways. But you do go to those major games for that crowd feeling, too, and that energy. Right. So that's a bummer. Well, hopefully it'll get back if we can get some type of herd immunity or whatever they're looking to get. I don't want to talk about medicine because I'm not a scientist. I don't know much about it. I'm hearing there's a pretty good chance that they'll never come up with a vaccine for this because... There's lots of diseases that they don't have vaccines for. And if that's the case, then you really just need to get to some type of a herd immunity. And the countries like Sweden that are just going out and doing that right now might be smarter. They won't be smarter if we do get a vaccine. Then they will have had a lot of people die for nothing. But if we never get a vaccine, they'll be in better shape than most other countries. So we'll see. Well, let's not get all weighted down and bummed out. It's just, I wanted to talk about the fairs because it's such a hit to so many people's income. Yeah. So support your local artists, whoever they may be. Yeah. And buy something if you can. Helps a lot. That's so true. Yeah. If you have a local artist or any artist you like online, realize that they're probably also taking a big hit in their income. And so help them out where you can. And I know a lot of you are probably also artists if you're listening. 
So yeah, you want other people to support you too. And if you are listening, just keep chugging away. Get that online following up and use yep. your time wisely. Learn new skills. Push your website. I was also thinking, I wonder how many artists are going to look at this and think, I don't even know if I want to start moving into the fairs. If that was something they were thinking about, just because they know now that that stuff can be canceled on a dime and then all this money they were relying on becomes stuff they don't have. So that might be a harder hit to the fairs in years to come. I guess we'll see. Yeah. Let's talk about how you know a piece is done because... That is something that I get people ask me about a lot. Rightly so, right? Because there's always times when you get towards the end of a piece where you're like, it looks like it's pretty good, but maybe if I do something else, it could be better. But also mm-hmm. that could ruin it. I could do something else and then it takes a step in the wrong direction where it looks overworked. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Do you have a way that you just know? How much in advance do you plan out that you know exactly where the shading's going to go and everything? I do pretty extensive planning. But the first thing I think we should say is there's a quote, I think it's Leonardo da Vinci I might be wrong but there's a quote that says something along the lines of art is never finished it's only abandoned Hmm. yeah you could always do more to a piece it's just when are you gonna stop right well that's the thing you can technically always add right and so having said that when do you know that your pieces are done or do you always view them as something that you could go back to I guess It's a tricky question. So I guess when I think it's done, I look at the piece, I do a self-critique, and I keep doing self-critiques until I don't have any more things that I notice. If I can't critique or see anything wrong that I would change, then I would just call it done. And there's different levels too, where if I'm going for a simpler stylization versus a more complex stylization, am I doing just line work and fills? Or are there going to be hard line shadows? Are they going to be gradient shadows? It all depends on the stylization I'm looking for too. Most of the time it's looking at the piece, developing your self-critiquing skills Sometimes looking at it again with new eyes, meaning let it sit for a day, Right. come back to it the next day. What do you see? Be pretty self-critical and take it from there. It is easy to overwork something. So I have a little less hesitation when it's digital. So I'll save files as I go sometimes. If I'm at a fork in the road as far as what kind of stylization I want to do or if I want to experiment with something, I'll make a note of that, save the file as. So I have a stopping point to come back to if it was a failed attempt Mm -hmm. at something. And that's why I love working digitally. You get to do that. But I am more cautious when I'm doing things more traditionally. And if the traditional thing is going to be the final piece too. If I'm bringing it digital, I'm usually not scared to try anything new because I know I can fix it digitally digital is a different beast i mean when i'm working digitally anytime i'm going to maybe continue on to a piece when i'm not sure if i want to continue on i'm not sure if it needs it i just put whatever i'm doing on a new layer so that i can do it and then just toggle back and forth to see if it worked or not it's so much easier right and i can't tell you how many times where i've added something and then i toggle that layer off and on so i can see if it worked it ended up being better without it right That makes you think, I wonder how many times traditionally you're working where maybe you add something and then because it's a traditional piece, you can't toggle back and forth between what it just looked like and what it now looks like to see which one you like better. Right. So that's a challenge. I do like this idea that this isn't even just a visual art idea. This is kind of a idea that translates through many different types of creativity like comedy where comedians, you'll hear them talk about the economy of words. You Mm -hmm. want to tell a joke with the fewest amount of words as possible, right? Yeah, yeah. And if you have too many words, it's clunky or something. And so as they're working out their jokes 
in clubs. They're maybe slowly taking pieces out and rewording things. And I find it to be the case with art too, that a lot of times you want to translate your piece, what you're trying to say, as few of marks as possible, if that makes sense, Mm -hmm. and imply things. You don't need to draw every little detail. In a lot of cases, you can imply lines that even aren't there, but the human mind will fill in the blanks because we know what things look like. And there's some artists out there that are just incredible minimalist artists like that. Just a couple of lines and it's perfect. You know exactly what they're drawing. And I envy those people because I have a hard time with doing minimal work like that. There's been some times where I've sat down to do like a minimal piece. I'm like, I want to do this in as few lines as possible. And I always end up doing more lines than I wanted to. Yeah. It's such a hard thing. It is very hard. It looks far easier than it is. I actually think it's easier to add more details than it is to have a simple, well-designed piece. I think it's because when you do a simple piece, you have to be very confident in the very few lines you put down. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're not confident, you can just keep adding details and things to try to like make up for the fact that maybe it wasn't as good of a design or something. Right. Have you ever looked through Alan Kober's The Forgotten Society book? I don't think so. It's a great book where he went into nursing homes and prisons and did drawings of the inmates and the, the people in the nursing homes and insane asylums and things like that. And these drawings, are, some of them are so minimal. They're so rich. And you can tell he's very confident in what he's doing. I recommend that book to everybody that I talk to. If anyone says, what art books should I get? I always tell that book. And you can get used copies. I don't think it's still in print, but you can get a used copy for 20 bucks on Amazon. Best book I own. I look at it all the time because I'm so jealous of how minimal it is and how incredible some of the work in there is. Hmm. Do you do this too with traditional pieces? I'll be working on a traditional piece and I'll get to a point where maybe it's done, but maybe I could add more. I'm not really sure. And so I'll actually take a photograph of it and then bring it into Procreate. And experiment with it a bit. Yeah. And so you can actually use digital tools to help you with this process, even if you're not really a digital artist. There are so many times that I feel like I've screwed up a really nice sketch or drawing just because I kept going Mm -hmm. or a nice watercolor just because I kept going. That's always a bummer. But I think that's partly experience too. You know, the pencil mileage thing we keep talking about, pencil mileage or paintbrush mileage, you start to understand when, okay, that's the stopping point right there. Yeah. I think you get a better sense of that the longer you practice. I don't think I was very good at that at all early in my career. And I would always overwork something or over-illustrate is a big thing. Yeah. Details in places that had no effect to the narrative that I'm trying to tell in the illustration. Yeah, it's all nice. And it looks really nice when you look at everything individually. But what's the point of it? You got to purposefully direct to tell the story that you want. This conversation doesn't nearly apply to digital artists. And I was also thinking of collage artists nearly as much because with collage you can also try things out before you actually get the glue out but it doesn't mean it doesn't apply because there's still ways you can overwork your stuff you have to have a good eye for what's working and what's not working what do you think about this would you rather see a piece that's slightly underdone or because i always think i'd rather see something that's on the underdone side always always i think it's always way more interesting when it's underdone it's like meat you don't want it overcooked right like i'd rather have <laughs> it like, like yeah. i want a medium rare steak i don't want <laughs> i feel like it's true though i don't want it well done yeah well once it's overdone you just think well there's nothing that you can do to fix this piece pretty much now but when it's underdone okay, this is going somewhere. You can bite your teeth into it. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. It's just such an interesting thing. 
I'm always trying to do work in different levels of completeness. I always think that they're complete, but I mean, I'm always trying to do work that's more and more minimal. And then I go back to where I was because a lot of artists, maybe they have their color palette they like to use. They have very specific things that they do in each of their pieces with shading and stuff. And I think it's fun to try to experiment with that stuff. When I went into the main college of art and I worked with the seniors a little bit with their thesis work, there was an artist there. And I think I've told this story on the podcast, but she was showing her work and I was in there for like an in-progress critique to critique their work and help them a little bit. And she showed a piece that was done. And then she showed a piece that was kind of half done and still needed a little bit more, she thought. In my mind, I could see immediately that the piece that she thought wasn't quite done yet was better than the one that was completed. Mm -hmm. And so I said, maybe it'd be fun for this project to have the four pieces that you're doing maybe in different stages of completeness. And the reason I said that is because I was hoping that if she did that, she would be able to see that Mm. the ones that are more in the middle were actually better. And maybe that should be her level of completeness moving forward. Right. And I don't know if that was the case. Sometimes it's fun to take things further than that and work out some details and stuff, but it's good to know when your piece could be done. Yeah, I could add more, but I think this also could stand as a finished piece as it is right now. Yeah, all because it didn't take you much time doesn't mean it's not a finished piece. That's so true. There's some weird sketches that I have in my sketchbook that I think are finished pieces now that I look at it in retrospect because there's a purity behind it and there's a nice energy behind it. Yeah. You wish you could capture that. Sometimes I can't capture that kind of same energy going into a piece knowing that it's going to be a final piece. Or if I'm doing the final line work on a sketch, sometimes I'll have to do that line work a couple times because it's not feeling as good as the original sketch felt. It happens all the time, for sure. I was thinking of the Alice in Wonderland show that we did in Portland a few years ago. Yeah. And I was thinking of Scott Nash's piece, and he did a small Alice in the middle of it. It was a giant piece, and it was basically entirely white, except in the middle there was a tiny little Alice. And it takes bravery to put up a piece of art that's basically 97% of it is just empty. And 3% of the page is actually filled with some type of a drawing. But man, it's brave, but it's cool to see how little you can put on a piece of paper and still activate the whole page. Totally. That's what I thought about it. And that's why I think Alan Kober, that book I was talking about, is so good is because there are a lot of drawings like that where there's a lot of empty space. But man, it's cool to see that. I love empty space. I love seeing it. And I love seeing it when it's done well and intentionally. But it's hard as an artist to sit there with it. You just want to fill it, right? Yeah. A lot of times. And so that's the hardest thing is to show restraint and to think like, okay, this is done. I don't like when people think that it's unfinished because it's white. No, it can be finished. Use the white. I think minimal art too is becoming more and more popular. And I'm wondering if it's because minimalism is becoming more popular, where people are living in tiny houses and living with a tiny footprint. And so that's carried over into the art world where people like to see things that are more minimal. Yeah, maybe. It's just kind of like a consciousness or something that they're not even thinking about, but it's carrying over. I don't know. It's just interesting. Simplifying things to the point where they're as simple as they possibly can get, but still telling the same story. I thought that it was an interesting topic just because so many people ask me about, how do you know when you're done? And like you said, art, I don't remember who you said, was it? 
Leonardo da Vinci, I think. Yeah, he said basically always go back into it and work on it. Yeah, it's never finished. Just abandoned. So think about that. I like your idea, though, of just stepping away from a piece, coming back to it a day or two later, because you might come back to it and think, oh, this is done. Whereas if, if you had just sat there and kept going, you might have overworked it. I have to keep telling myself advice that Jake Parker always gives. He says, finish not perfect, and just kind of have that in the back of your mind. It's like, yeah, keep finishing things, but they don't need to be perfect. Right. Sometimes it's easy to become obsessive about a piece and being hypercritical of every little detail right. and not realizing that some of these imperfections are what's giving it life. Yeah. It's a fine line that can be crossed both ways that you just have to realize and embrace your imperfections, your humanity, like your human mistakes, because that's what makes the art have feeling and emotion and texture and different levels. Yep. It's like having that medium rare steak. Don't overcook it. I have another idea too that I do sometimes. If you have Procreate, more people than ever have that program on their iPad. Do like a line drawing of a face, maybe some cross hatching or whatever. And then after you're done the face, take out a tool, like an eraser tool, you know, whatever type of eraser tool you want, doesn't really matter. And then just start erasing one side of it. And then look at it and see what it looks like. Because I can't tell you how many times I've done that and erased half of the nose and one full ear and a little part of the mouth and maybe a part of one of the eyes. And it looks so cool. And your brain fills in the rest. It just makes you realize just how much extra work I just did for nothing. Because I just erased a third of the work I did. And now this piece, I think, actually looks better. I remember learning that lesson early in art school in a graphic design class. We were working with typography. And the assignment was to, we were drawing letters. And one of the assignments was to draw any letter, but with as few lines as possible. As like as few indicators as possible. So you'd still know that that's that letter. Yep, I remember this. I did the same project. It was awesome. It's such an interesting experiment to do for yourself. How little can I actually show to make the viewer know that that's still a J or whatever? Yeah. I love doing that too with my character design. You're thinking about, let's say, a moose character. What do I really need to have from a moose to make it look like a moose and identifiable as a moose? And for even a five-year-old to identify that as a moose. Right. What are those things? And to really push that. That's what's really exciting, I think, and fun. Yeah, because you could pretty much just do antlers. You put two dots and like a line and everyone knows it's a smiley face, right? Mm -hmm. It's literally two dots and one line. Right. And you can make the line curve up and everyone knows it's a happy face and curve down and now the person is sad. So you're not even just implying a person, you're implying emotion too with two dots. And what's cool about that? You could take away the two dots. And it still implies And you're still implying happiness. Yeah. That's some of the stuff you learn in art school. And these lessons are so important because you realize, like you said, you take away the dots and all you have is a curved line. When it's pointed up, happy. When it's pointed down, it's just an arch, basically. Mm -hmm. And our mind goes sad immediately. Weird. It is weird. When I frown, I don't think my mouth actually really... I'm looking at you through FaceTime (laughs) and you're frowning like really ridiculous. That's not how you normally would frown. (laughs) Like your mouth doesn't actually... Like a bass. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Your mouth doesn't actually do those things. It doesn't really go way up like that or way down. But cartoonists learned long ago how to simplify humans and we're just copying. It'd be weird if nobody had come up with a good way to simplify humans like that and you were the first person to do it. Look, these two dots in this line looks like a face and people are like, yeah, you're right. 
Because someone was the first person. Yeah, look at caveman drawings. Right. Look how simplified they are. I guess they were the ones that figured it out. It didn't take long to figure it out. Right. Like, we know that's a bison. We know that's a human. We know that they're hunting. It's so simple. And they're just basic shapes, basic line. Yeah. Everything breaks down. And when you start learning drawing, you realize that everything is broken down into simple shapes. Mm-hmm. Once you know that, you can draw anything. Yeah. Any book on drawing will show you how a head is broken down into like a circle and triangles and different shapes for different parts. I loved those books, but I always had a hard time with that when I first started. It took a long time for me to understand the whole things are built of shapes. And I was just like, well, why don't you just draw it? Why don't you just draw the thing? Right. Why are you doing all this structure? I always just poo-pooed it for so long. And then I think it was college when I'm studying illustration and studying how to simplify things and studying how important it is to break down the anatomy into shapes so that you can make multiples of that character. I always used to have a hard time drawing the same character over and over and at different angles. It's because you're not... You're not focusing on the shapes. Right. You're not focusing on the underlying structure. That's it. Once you know those, you can draw something from any angle because you know the shapes that are making it up. And then to get back to the topic, can you limit these shapes and simplify the character to find what that final is easier? I guess that doesn't really bring it back to the topic. Kind of does. I think it does because we're talking about how to know when things are done. And so once you do realize that everything's made up of shapes, then just implying shapes can just leave so much out when you're implying shapes, like with the letter exercise, where you're just trying to see how little lines you can put down to indicate which letter it is. And that translates to everything. And of course, the point of drawing is not, okay, I'm going to draw a moose. I want to make sure that everyone knows it's a moose. That's it, right? right. Because you want to have something interesting. You want to have something cool and style to it. So it's not just that. The point is, once you realize that, it frees you up to not have to worry so much about all the details that you're thinking in your head in order to get your point across. I guess you should always go into a piece with a reason. There should be a story you're trying to convey, an idea, some concept, and everything you do in that piece should be just how to get closer to that concept or that narrative, that story. Let all the other stuff be background elements that may be helping push the story along, but they don't need to be the center of focus. Right. You don't need to draw every book on the bookshelf unless you're now focused on the bookshelf and you're looking for the book that you need for your narrative, you know, to continue and to push it forward. Right. Or do you just need hints at the bookshelf to know that you're in the library? There always should be reason to do things. So if you're going to be hyper detailed and realistic and everything's perfect, have there be a reason for that. Otherwise, you're just over illustrating. I guess this probably isn't so much of a topic for people that are photorealistic artists because it's easy to know when you're done. It's when it looks just like the photograph you're using for reference. But for most of us, that's not the case. We're not trying to be photorealistic. So even if you are being photorealistic, you could bring life to a photo or to a composition by how you draw it. If in the photo you're focusing on the emotion of the person, let that shine. You don't have to over-illustrate everything else. In portraiture, even realistic traditional portraiture, you'd notice even old Renaissance paintings, you'll see like the eyes are perfectly rendered and the face is really well rendered, but maybe a little less than the eyes. And it goes out and out and out from there. Like you look at the hands, sometimes thumb paintings, you'll see they're not as realistically rendered because you want the focus at the face. Right. You want to be looking eye to eye with the portrait. Yeah. And so, you know, when you go into it with intention, no matter what kind of style you're going for, that's the ultimate goal, I think. That's a great exercise to work on, too, what you're talking about. Pick a subject that you want to draw. Pick your focal point before you start drawing. And then draw 
really detailed on the focal point and then as you move out get less and less detailed i think you'll notice your focal point will be much clearer and you'll see just how little you have to do around it to draw the eye where it's supposed to go but infer enough around it if you're hyper aware of even your eyes now when you're looking at whatever you're looking at if i'm looking at the screen if i'm looking at the computer screen everything in my peripherals is blurry right you could draw that way we're used to that you could guide the eye in the composition that way or make focus points that way yeah cool technique and you don't have to draw blurry but just less detail it means you're just implying things like you're talking about with peripherals you just see what's happening over here but you don't really see the full picture because it's in your peripheral it's blurry and you could draw it crisp at first and then digitally make it blurry that's true too that's another option if you're working digitally there's definitely more options for things like that i think this was a cool discussion i like to talk about how other artists know when they're done and what techniques they might use these are also just some techniques this isn't set in stone ways to do it there's always reason to have everything be crystal clear is another point i'm trying to make so yeah I think it is good to take some time to draw and try these things out so you can maybe learn some things and figure out how much maybe you're over-rendering in some cases, and then you'll be able to understand when things are finished easier. The more you see how little you have to draw, I guess is my point. I think if anything, most people tend to overwork their work rather than underwork it. I think that's usually my problem too. That's my problem. And so I think it's almost everyone's. And so to work on figuring out what you can leave out, that's what you want to do if you're overworking your work. Okay, well, what parts are the least crucial that I can leave out and still this piece is just as strong, if not stronger? That's the point. you got to figure that out. It helps you in the long run, too, if you're thinking of it as a business pipeline. You want to simplify your pipeline, your process, and how you make something. Because yeah. every time you simplify, that's more money in your pocket. Yeah. That's more time in your pocket for you to make more money. And time is money. So you could think of it that way, too. I think you're right. If you look at it like a business, then definitely the more that you can streamline things. And you're not even cutting corners don't view it like that because you're really not. You're actually making your work better. If you're a person that tends to overwork your art, which is, I'd say, most artists, then streamlining it like this isn't cutting corners in traditional sense where you think of a builder who cuts corners and then the house isn't as sturdy. Or This is like cutting corners in a good way because you're making your art better by not overworking it. You're saving yourself time and you're making better work. There's not many businesses maybe you could say that about right. where you can cut corners like that and not have it negatively affect the outcome. Right. Thanks for joining us today. I think this was a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, it was good talk. Yeah. And let us know what you thought. We have the discount code for podcast listeners, which is on Etsy. Just use the thumbnail when you're checking out and yep. you get 25% of most of the stuff in our shops. Just let us know if you have any ideas for future episodes. We'd love to hear them. Direct message us yep. on Instagram at Fort House. Lewis is at Lewis Rosignol. And you could also send us an email at thumbnailpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, we're always happy to hear from you. Thanks for joining us today, guys. Thanks, guys. Take care.